Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And I have two interesting women here uh, with me today to talk about a really important subject, the so-called Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and Emma Waters is a research associate, uh, research associate, sorry, I'm stumbling over my words today, in the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. She's also a fellow with us at IWF. Jennifer Braceris is my intrepid colleague. Uh, she's a director of the Independent Women's Law Center, uh, which is connected to IW, which is very, very scary and nefarious, uh, as we've discovered, according to Senator Whitehouse uh, today in this hearing that we're going to talk about. Um, welcome, ladies, to High Noon. It's so I'm so glad to have you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. So um, I wanted to do this kind of... Um, whatever, hash out post-game kind of uh, chat about this hearing that happened today. We're, we're speaking on Tuesday afternoon. This hearing happened on Tuesday morning in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, Jennifer, you testified against the ERA along with a, a fellow a witness against it. Um, Democrats got three witnesses since they, they hold the majority. Um, what was your impression? Let's start with you, Jennifer. What was your impression um, about the, the ERA hearing. Um, what was your impression being in the room? There was quite a bit of kerfuffle for what you, are usually pretty dry Senate hearings. Yeah, well, I mean, to some extent, all Senate hearings are political theater. I think this one more so than others, um, because frankly, I think that even the senators that are are for, quote unquote, lifting the deadline and pushing this forward know that, that that's not actually legal and that it's an illegitimate process. I think they know in their heart of hearts that the ERA expired in 1979. And this is just an attempt to get Republicans on the record as being against it so that they, they, the Democrats can go out and say Republicans are against women's equality, um, which of course isn't true because we all know that men and women are equal in this country and women are protected under federal constitutional law, state constitutional law, and dozens and dozens and dozens of statutes. So um, it was a lot of political theater. Emma, you were, you were in the audience today. You've got this, uh, for, for those of us who are watching on YouTube, um, you have the Stop Erasing Me, ERA Erasing Me t-shirt. Um, Stop Erasing Us. Uh, what was your impression of the energy in, in the hearing today? There, as I, I mentioned, there were a couple interruptions that took a long time. Like once again, Capitol Police very slow on the mark. You know, um, very slow on the uptake. We let them just go on and on, yelling and cutting off testimony. And notably, it was Jennifer's testimony that got cut off, um, not anyone who was supporting the ERA. And then it was questioning from Republican members, not Democrat members at the same time. Um, and even so we had three protesters stand up um, and they were three of the youngest um, women on the pro ERA side. And they were in their 30s and 40s. If that tells you anything about the age makeup mm -hmm. of the hearing is that the 30s and 40s were about the youngest. It's and funny, I couldn't see them because they were behind me. So yeah. I, I had no idea. Idea. Yeah, no, the breakdown was insane. So like, we had like two packed outsides pro ERA, um, anti ERA, um, those who were um, opposed to the ERA, and it's very anti woman efforts, were all about 30 and younger. Um, and so it was a very young, vibrant showing. And then the pro ERA side was on average, women in their 60s, um, some a little older, some a little younger. And so very much like the ERA 1970s generation coming out in support of this bill. Um, but it really begs the question of like, well, if our generation doesn't see a need for it, then I'm wondering why we're pushing for it. But the energy was very, it was just a very lively environment to be in. And, and Jennifer killed it in the testimony. Um, so everyone was like on the edge of their seats, like, I can't believe they just said that about the ERA. And then Jennifer would just come in and like clear it out. So it, it was a lively time to say the least. I do think the age difference is interesting because um, as you and I have talked a lot about Inez, fully 62% of American voters were either not yet born when this was first debated in the States or like me, they were about three or four years old. Um, and these are the very people that, that didn't, that haven't had a say. Um, they're the people who are effectively, you know, disfranchised if Congress is to shoehorn this into the constitution without sending it back to the States for, for, a new, you know, a new discussion. Uh, on the other side, I can see why the women in their 60s were there 
for the ERA to some extent, because they remember a time when women couldn't take out credit cards without their husband's, you know, permission and, and, you know, were sent before sexual harassment was unlawful. And, you know, they, they sort of remember the bad old days and seem to be kind of living in fear that they're coming back when, when there's no evidence that they are. Yeah. No, on that, it's just an interesting perspective because then my generation, right? Like Gen Z was born a decade and a half um, at the earliest um, after the ERA already expired. But we thankfully have come come to age under this uh, regime of good constitutional protections, good laws that actually protect women um, and even advocate for them. So everything from the Pregnancy Discrimination Act to um, healthcare or Medicaid programs that like specifically help mothers or even Title IX, like these are things that we've just been able to take for granted and greatly benefit from that it seems that those supporting the ERA just didn't have at the time. But yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I disagree with about at least half of those protections, but um, they they are in place, and and the the interpretation and um, of of the equal protection clause that that includes um, a intermediate scrutiny for for sex. But before we get into some of the legal details, um, Jennifer, what was the argument that you gave in the hearing today? The fundamental argument about why this amendment, um, which as re- was repeated over and over again by the proponents of it, oh, this is about basic fundamental equality between men and women. You know, why why are you opposed to this amendment? What argument did you give the senators uh, against against it and against voting for this resolution? Well, two things. I mean, first of all, I'm opposed to the process, which is anti-democratic, um, because the ERA has expired. And as, as I said previously, you know, the, the current, state legislators haven't had a chance to vote on it. Um, Only three states have voted on it this century and query what they were even voting on since it had already expired. So, um, you know, we don't amend the Constitution lightly in this country. And when we do, it's important that uh, the states give not just their consent, but informed consent, and that we have a discussion about what this means. so I do think it needs to go back to the states, not only because it's expired, but because uh, the states need to consider it in light of changed circumstances. Um, on the merits itself, w- one of the things that's changed dramatically um, is the definition of sex. In 1971, everybody knew that the word sex referred to biological sex. Well, today, there are many people who argue that it should include gender identity. Um, I, I don't believe that. I think sex and gender identity are separate things. Um, but, but if the ERA prohibits government discrimination on the basis of sex, is that going to now mean government discrimination on the basis of gender identity? Um, and if so, what does that mean for federally run prisons, um, state colleges and universities, um, private spaces at state colleges and universities, does that mean that men can self-identify into women's spaces as a matter of constitutional right? Um, these are all questions that, that need to be answered, I think, before we can change the highest law of the land. Yeah, well, there's an underlying truth here, right, which is that men and women are, are biologically different. Um, and, and that those differences are sometimes relevant, right? Sometimes they're not relevant. Um, and sometimes women have been discriminated against unfairly uh, because somebody thought, for example, that a woman can't be a, a chemist, isn't qualified to be a chemist, right? We, we, we now think that that kind of discrimination probably unfair, right? Um, but there are plenty of quote-unquote discriminations that women rely on every single day in this country, the discrimination to request uh, you know, a, a female TSA agent, if they're going to invade your other rights by patting you down right at the airport, um, the the right to uh, to be able to be housed um, in a dorm or compete on a, a public um, public university sports team, right, with people who are the same sex as you to compete against other women and then potentially win. There was a lot of contempt for those kinds of issues coming from the Democratic 
side, particularly the senators on the committee. Jennifer, uh, how did you feel when when Senator Dick Durbin basically said these are fake concerns? They don't matter. Women's sports don't matter. One of the um, the Democratic witnesses also repeated this over and over again. Oh, uh, women don't care about men in women's sports. Women that these are these are irrelevant concerns. I mean, how did you feel when you heard that? Well, they're not irrelevant concerns. I mean, you know, since 1972, the number of women playing sports, both at the high school and collegiate level, has increased exponentially. And and that's a good thing. We want women to have the same opportunities as men um, to, to compete and to win. But also, you know, participation in sports is, is a huge entryway to the boardroom. And women who have success in in team sports, particularly at the collegiate level, um, often go on to do great things in the business world and law, medicine. Um, so th- it's a pathway for women. And, you know, the notion that Senator Durbin said it doesn't matter if boys take spots on women's field hockey teams, um, you know, I, it's rather upsetting. I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for Billie Jean King and the Women's Sports Foundation to come out and condemn him for it. But maybe Martina Navitarola will, maybe, maybe some of them will. Emma, same same question to you, because um, in some level, I feel like he had a point, but almost the opposite <laughs> from the opposite perspective. Right. When we talk about women's sports, um, it can seem like, OK, is it really the end of the world? Yes, it's unfair. Even even if we, we uh, acknowledge that, is it really the end of the world if, if um, the, you know, the 200 meter butterflies is, is swum faster by by a man? Um, have we devalued sex differences in all of these other categories such that we ended up in a place where even something as obvious as the unfairness of the, the, you know, having Leah Thomas come in and compete as, as a man against women um, in the 200 meter butterfly doesn't seem like an absurdity. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and part of this even goes back to the conservative movements uh, comfort with making sex merely a material argument. And so you can avoid uncomfortable arguments about morality or even like the spiritual nature of what it means to be a man and a woman if you just make it about biological sex. And I think this is where we've actually like hurt ourselves in the long run, because then when it comes to debates like this and you hear Democrats saying, well, I think equality of rights and what it means to be a woman is about way more than sports. And obviously that's true, right? But it is certainly not anything less than that. When when it comes to what it means to be a man and woman in your biological framing, as well as what it means to be a man and woman in the way that you interact and like the, the greater impact that has. And so sports, I think, has rightly um, been used as a very obvious example of how this sort of discrimination and this sort of devaluing of sex has taken place. And I also think that they're right, that it's a whole lot more than that, but it can't, it certainly cannot be less than that at the same time. Um, And so like you need both sides of the argument, um, which I think a lot of people are making um, in this, but their approach of just saying, no, well, we don't actually care about women's sports doesn't seem to be the winning argument for, uh, most people in America today. Yeah, this is this is a popular argument, right? Um, polling on these issues is very good about uh, excluding men from female uh, sports teams, excluding men from female prisons, um, excluding men from. We, we're dealing with all of these issues in the transgender identification context, right? Where where you know men like Leah Thomas identify as a woman, even though uh, he's very clearly a biological man. Um, and and has you know proven that in the locker room with his fellow teammates. <laughs> um, so you know, how, how does this affect? Because the whole country has been talking about all of these sort of same set of issues, right? Women's locker rooms, women's spaces, women's competitions, um, women's prisons, right? Um, the example I gave about the TSA, all of these instances in which we recognize sex in the context of people who identify as the opposite sex and therefore are claiming special privileges to be treated as the opposite sex in these contexts. How does the ERA expand this out, Jennifer? Because it it seems like it almost makes it moot, this whole transgender issue. No, that's true. I mean, the original problems, the problems with the problems with the ERA, um, you know, predate issues of gender identity for sure. Um, and and the problem is that 
what proponents of the ERA argue is that it would then require courts to treat race and sex the same. So, um, you know, in this country, we basically regard any separation of people on the basis of race as illegitimate and, and immoral. Um, that is not the case with sex. But but the proponents of the ERA, the reason they want it, the, the only reason they want it is because it would do something more than what the Equal Protection Clause already does. And the Equal Protection Clause um, you know, the, the interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause that we currently have is that you have to treat similarly situated men and women equally. Um, but in cases where biology or privacy or equal opportunity matter, they don't have to be treated exactly the same all the time. So it's a flexible standard. Um, not, not so with race. Um, as Senator Lee pointed out today, uh, strict scrutiny is, you know, almost always fatal in fact. And if we apply that level of scrutiny to single sex opportunities, um, they will almost all be struck down. Emma, how, how can we make these kinds of arguments? Um, you mentioned that actually there's sort of a reverse generational divide going on here um, in that room. Uh, but if you look at polling, for example, right, um, you see that millennials, my generation, and then Gen Z, yours, right? Um, we have three generations of women here, Gen X, millennials, <laughs> and Gen Z, right? Yeah. Um, and how, how, do, how, how do you think uh, that we can make this argument, not just about the ERA, but about the importance of, of sex differences to a new generation of women who, according to polling, are very concerned and feel very much victimized as women. And we saw that, the representation of that um, in the Democratic Witness, and, and I'm forgetting her name off the top of my head. Maybe you remember Jennifer. Um, but one Thursday. of the Democratic, sorry? I think her name was Thursday Williams. Thursday Williams. So she, I mean, every sentence that she was saying, even though she started out with like her great trajectory, academic trajectory, right? And attending college and all the things that she had done that had qualified her uh, to sit in that hearing today, um, but every sentence out of her mouth was some form of, of victimhood. And almost all of them started with I, right? I, as a black woman, am victimized all the time. Like, literally, that was the structure of almost every sentence that came out of her mouth. I mean, how do we argue about the importance and the subtlety, honestly, of sex differences and the beauty of sex differences um, to, to folks who first and foremost see that sex identity as one apparently completely fluid. And one of the other witnesses started with pronouns. So I really wonder what she thinks the ERA has to say about, about women's, <laughs> um, about women and the definition of women. But, you know, how can we make that kind of argument to people who see their sex as fluid and as, um, as, as really as, as a burden um, that, that has led to them being victimized and discriminated against by society, even though all the statistics yeah. say that's not true? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think just the great fight of our generation is this messaging battle that in reality, these Ivy League or going on to Ivy League educated women are maybe not being discriminated against in the ways that they're claiming, right? Um, so one of, I think it was Senator Murkowski started off um, some of her questioning, just citing all the ways that women don't have exact 50-50 representation with men. So 50% of CEOs aren't women, right? 50% of Supreme Court justices aren't women. And well, she what was most flabbergating, <laughs> flabbergasting. Sorry, I just so just floored by what she said is that, that the Senate itself isn't 50% female. And I thought to myself, well, how on earth would the ERA change that? I mean, are, are you are you suggesting that we're not going to let people vote for their senators anymore and that we're going to assign representation on the basis of, of right. sex. Well, and this is what was so mind boggling about the whole. Yeah. Because she wasn't foolish enough to say, and the ERA would fix that. But it was this two sided argument where she was like, we support the ERA. As a side note, did you know that women don't have 50-50 representation in every part of society? Um, and she never connected those two, but it was certainly this emotional ploy suggesting to our <clears throat> generation of women that somehow they are being discriminated against because there isn't this 50-50 representation, which as Jennifer pointed out, 
one, if you pointed to it, you would be violating the rights and choice of like every American when it comes to voting. Um, but there just seems to be this like the, just the really disingenuous argument arguments being made. Right. Because also 50 percent of uh, trash pickup people and 50 percent of the people in prison aren't women either. And so I think maybe, that- maybe she thinks that each state should have one male senator and one female senator. And if you're a biological female, you can only run for that particular slot. And, you know, I mean, I'd like to tease this out with her a little more. And like, I'm sure what there are exactly a lot of people she... who would want that, right? Like, I think that would probably be pretty popular I mean, on this. I don't know. I think it's insanity, actually. But um, it, it totally overlooks it... to the decision making power of women. Like, right. So it's saying that all of the women who have chosen marriage, who have chosen um, to stay at home with their kids. Right. Like you saw a huge um, decline in women's workforce pr- participation after COVID. And notably, these are women who are working um, less than sexy jobs, right? Like they're working at fast food restaurants, they're working at at administrators, they're working in offices that don't have the same glitz and glam as many of these women are advocating for. And it seems that those are actually decisions that they really want to make. So 2021 polling from American Compass showed that aside from like the higher, like the upper income bracket, most women actually want to be either at home full-time or working a flexible part-time job that allows them to be present with their family and with their community. Um, And these are the self-reported desires of women, right? And so it seems to be really disrespectful to the majority of the women in the nation saying that you actually aren't smart enough to make your own decisions about what you value. Well, I think, and I think she's also making another sort of really disturbing point, which is that only women can represent other women. I mean, so can only blacks represent blacks and only Asians represent Asians. And, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I live in Massachusetts. Elizabeth Warren is my senator I, and my former law professor. I, I didn't vote for her. I never will vote for her. Um, I, you know, I don't feel that I have to vote for her simply because she's a woman. I'm going to vote for the person whose viewpoints, you know, most reflect my own. I mean, yeah. the, the notion that women can only be represented by other women is really offensive. And I think this takes it in a totally different direction, but I was formed and trained by um, a fantastic family structure uh, studies professor at UVA. And I think what's so fascinating in looking at our demographic, even voting trends and the sort of arguments that are made around the ERA, a lot of I would say like Gen Z and even millennial, a lot of them are being raised in single parent homes um, with fathers who aren't in the home in many instances or are products of divorce a lot of times. And it seems that like they've seen men in their lives let them down in very legitimate, severe ways. And the people like the families, like the mother and father that were supposed to be there for them, the parents that were supposed to be there for them in some capacity, one way or the other weren't. And so it seems that this sort of like rage at the failure on like the familial level is now coming out on the national level. Um, and, and saying that there was some sort of wrong done to them. But instead of looking maybe closest to home where that wrong probably has and did take place statistically, it's being thrown on the national level. Um, And so even in like changing the conversation, I think it's just pointing out all of the ways that like, yes, there are legal distinctions in law between men and women. And from every case that I've reviewed, those legal distinctions benefit women and actually protect them or provide for them or create a space for them that they otherwise wouldn't have if something like the Equal Rights Amendment was amended. I want to return to something that you mentioned kind of in passing about women not going back to work um, in in higher numbers after COVID. Um, In keeping with this generational sort of conversation, it seems to me that there, there has been, we have passed peak girl boss, right? Um, That, that younger women, um, particularly zoomers are sort of rejecting this archetype. We might even call it in the most positive sense, the Amy Coney Barrett archetype, right? Where she's just managed to raise a large and beautiful family while working full time and now becoming a Supreme court justice. But it seems like a lot of women are basically saying that's exhausting. Like even for the small percentage of women who can pull it off, it's exhausting. It's like living five lives all the time. Um, you know, what what do you think about sort of the, the cultural pushback? Because it seems like it's outside of sort of the conservative political space. Like I've seen videos and so on. of, And, and it seems to kind of even be entering the lingo, like the way girl boss, people used to say girl boss unironically. And now nobody would be caught dead saying that like, oh, I'm I'm a girl boss. Right. Um, 
And so what do you think about this? Like, have, have we passed uh, a certain kind of Rubicon in the culture where women are um, fed up with the demands of, quote unquote, having it all? Um, and if so, which direction do you think that's going to tip? Because I could see it tipping in a conservative direction and a return to a more, um, you know, traditional family structure, women asserting themselves and the things that they want and need that are different from men in life and their, their sort of life trajectory. Uh, but I could also see it tipping over into more victimhood, right? The reason that this is hard is because women make 77 cents and we can debunk that all day long. I've been debunking it for a decade, um, as have many other people, including Jennifer, including, you know, Christina Hoff Summers, like this, this is a nonsense statistic, but I could see it tipping that, that actual feeling of being overwhelmed um, with, with the double burdens of doing what women still want to do um, in terms of family and community obligations and working full time and like accelerating their careers. I mean, which way do you think that's, that's ultimately that kind of rage is going to tip? Yeah, it's a great question. And tying into the hearing about the only area that they could say um, that they face legitimate discrimination has to do with how much women make wage wise, um, which, as you said, has been debunked a million times over. And again, even if the ERA was passed, it wouldn't actually address this problem. Um, so that's clearly on the minds of a lot of women in the room. Um the ERA wouldn't fix it. So it seems to be a side issue. But when it comes to women and working and raising families, I think back, like you, you sort of have this like progression from the 1990s when the mommy wars were, I think, at some of the highest points um, and like some of the like greatest vitriol that you've seen between women was really coming in that era. Um, and then you have like the Atlantic and other articles in 2016 that are like, why women can't like still can't have it all. And they were really pointing out that exhaustion that you're talking about. And then COVID happened. Um, and while the pandemic was clearly very bad, right, and had just terrible impact across society, there were some benefits that came from it. And one of those was the expansion in technology that enabled people to take the workplace back into their home, making home the central part of women's lives um, and, and even men's lives, right, for the first time in ages. And so all of a sudden, you actually had this restoration of the centrality of the home where women could both work and like engage in these either creative or necessary outlets that they enjoyed um, or if they needed to work right like had to do while also still being able to primarily be at home and cook more meals and see their children when they come home from school or even homeschool their children on top of this and I think for a lot of women it just struck this chord of like whoa like there's a way that I can still engage in the workplace the marketplace of ideas and be primarily present with my family. Um, and so this is, and with technology, right? Like so many jobs appear to be full-time jobs. And in reality, maybe you're only working 15 to 20 hours a week, but you're able to experience both aspects of that in a really healthy way. And then the second thing I would say is maybe women can have it all, but that doesn't mean that they have to have it all at one time, right? Um, so Ivana Greco is probably one of my favorite writers on this at the moment. And she's really been making the case that for decades, especially going back to the 1920s, 1930s, um, women were pursuing careers, but they were pursuing careers that allowed them to have um, easy reentry back to work, a flexible schedule with their children, um, and that were kind of timeless. So think educators or nurses who could work, um, but then had summers off with their family, or they could maybe step away for a couple of years with young kids and then just get new certifications and reenter back into the space. And I think we're starting to see that flexibility on a much wider level of career options for women, um, even than ever before. So I tend to be more optimistic about the direction we're seeing this. Um, women are still not entering back into the workforce at, at, high, at as high of a percentage. Um, and many seem to actually be very happy, um, even with flexible time, right? Like three days in the office, two days at home, what have you. So I tend to think that this could go a very positive direction. Um, but again, like pandemic happiness uh, statistics showed, women who are married or have kids tend to be happier. Um, women who aren't married and don't have kids tend to not be as happy. So I think it's probably going to self-select out based on where they find themselves um, in society. So Brad Wilcox's uh, very provocative New York Times article, why conservatives are happy and liberals are sad. And it basically just said like, 
based on recent polling, women who happen to be conservative happen to say they were happier, more satisfied with life. And the opposite was true of people who happen to identify on the left. Um, and so maybe we're just going to see like a pretty dramatic uh, difference between the two groups uh, and less middle ground. Um, let's, let's, let's get into some of the legal issues here. Um, Jennifer, there are obviously major procedural problems. It's, it's, it's kind of surreal to be here talking about the resurrection of the ERA, right? Um, I, I was always taught that Phyllis Schlafly killed the ERA in the 1970s, right? That was in my history books. Um, and notably, Ben so, said something to the effect of, I remember when Phyllis Schlafly was making this argument. And I was like, how old are we right now? That was a long time ago. <laughs> well, I thought it was funny because he, he also, so uh, Senator Durbin also said that like very derisively, like, oh, I remember when Phyllis Schlafly was in here talking about bathroom privacy. It was like, have you looked around yourself? <laughs> like Everything she said came true. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um but in any case, uh, Jennifer, what what are the procedural problems with resurrecting this more than 50 years later um, and and ratifying it just with these three states in the last since 2017? Um, because correct me if I'm wrong, especially the proponents who are yelling, they were saying the ERA is already ratified. Congress doesn't even need to take the step of dissolving right. the deadline. It doesn't matter. It's already ratified. Right. Their view is it just has to be published and people just have to start. Uh, suing to enforce it. Um, but the, the Congress that passed the ERA and sent it to the states in 1972 did so with a seven-year deadline. And as one of the senators commented today, that seven-year deadline was very important in terms of getting the passage. In other words, there were senators who would only vote for it if it included um, a truncated timeline. Um, and so everybody knew that that seven years was what they had. Um, and certainly the the um, state legislators who voted for it knew that that was the timeline they were operating under. Um, and so it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody when the seven years passed without uh, ratification by 38 states that, that, that this amendment was dead. Now, some people argue, well, prior to the deadline, Congress extended the deadline to 1982. I personally, my legal opinion is that that um, extension isn't valid because it only passed by a simple majority and constitutional amendments require um, two thirds of both houses of Congress. Um, so I don't happen to think that extension is valid, but even hypothetically for the sake of argument, if you say that the deadline passed in 1982, everybody at that point knew it had passed. Gloria, Gloria Steinem said the ERA was dead. Um, everybody acknowledged it. Um, then what happened was uh, the 27th Amendment was sort of resurrected from the dead. That was an amendment with, that was put forward with the original Bill of Rights um, by James Madison, and it had to do with congressional pay and not allowing members of Congress to raise the pay during their term for themselves. Um, so it dealt with self-dealing and that constitutional amendment had no deadline. It didn't, Congress didn't place a deadline on it. So when they finally were able to achieve the requisite number of state um, approvals to ratify that amendment, they were able to claim successfully that it was now part of the constitution. Um, I, I would actually argue, you know, there, there was a witness today, a professor um, on the Republican side who was making these legal arguments, um, her position was that that had Congress not included um, the seven-year timeline for the ERA, that then it could go on in perpetuity like the 27th Amendment. I, I actually, I, I think I disagree with that because um, as you've pointed out in other contexts, Inez, it certainly seems to go against the spirit of Article 5. And the difference, I think, between the Equal Rights Amendment and the Congressional Pay Amendment is that the passage of time doesn't change the arguments for or against congressional self-dealing. Um, the arguments are still the same in 2023 as they were in the 1700s. Um, 
That is not true when it comes to sex discrimination because the facts on the ground have changed, the definition of words have changed, um, the interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause has changed. And so I don't think you can say that an amendment that's open to interpretation like that can go on in perpetuity. Um, and take just for example, let's say in, the, in this particular case, there were 35 states that ratified the ERA before the deadline. Um, five of them, well, four of them rescinded that approval. Uh, and one of them, the approval sunsetted. So there are five of the 35, there are five who now say, no, we didn't want it. Um, what if all of them had rescinded? What if they had all rescinded and there were only three states that voted for it in modern times? Are you going to put an amendment into the Constitution that was rejected by 35 states after it was approved? I mean, that's the most anti-democratic thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, it certainly seems like their conception leaves no way for Americans to actually reject any amendment at any time. Right. They so what I there forever and if the words the meanings of the words if black means white and up means down a hundred years from now and we change our legal conventions and you know a couple states ratify then and then another hundred years they reverse the meanings of the words again and another couple states ratify for exactly opposite reasons um you can think of some very absurd scenarios here that as 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 you you uh kindly credited to me, but I don't think it's hardly my argument, but um, it, it does seem to like completely eviscerate the point of having such high barriers to amend the constitution, right? Two thirds of both houses of Congress, three fourths of the state legislatures ratifying, surely like the point of the, all of that is to ensure that Americans, that, that anything we put into the highest law of our land is very, very broadly popular. Right. It should have overwhelming overwhelming contemporaneous support. So there were two parts of this that were new to me that I thought were really interesting. And Jennifer, you'll have to speak to it because I don't remember it fully. But one was Senator Mike Lee made the point that there were, I think, like some votes or constitutional amendments maybe regarding race that states had rescinded their vote on but that the body was fully fine accepting the rescissions of certain constitutional amendment votes, but not others. Do you remember the case that he was talking about there? So there's an amendment. I think it's, I think it's the Corwin amendment that mm-hmm. professor Foley mentioned in her testimony. Um, and that is a, a proposed constitutional amendment. It, it never became law. Thank God. Um, it is a proposed constitutional amendment from the 1800s that would have preserved slavery. And, um, and it didn't pass. It didn't get the requisite three quarters of the states to support it. Um, but it doesn't have a deadline on it. And it it's still out there. Um, and so what Senator Lee was saying is, you know, in modern times, Maryland and other states rescinded their approval of that amendment because it's embarrassing that they ever, you know, supported it. Um, and so they rescinded their their support of that amendment. And, and his point was, you see, I think it was Senator Lee, maybe it was, was it Senator Lee? I think so. Yeah. Um, I think his point was, you know, why is that okay? But this isn't okay. The only difference seems to be the topic that, you know, you agree with rescission when it has to do with slavery, but you don't agree with precision when it has to do with, um, the equal rights amendment. So he was just pointing out the hypocrisy of, of their argument about rescission. Yeah. And the inconsistency there in the arguments, again, just cannot be, I I think, highlighted more that this is not about upholding proper congressional or constitutional process, right? Like this is a purely political motive on their part. And they're trying to use whatever levers of power possible to really shove this through, even against, I think the, well, I mean, one, clearly against what's best for women, but two, even against the best wishes of the American people. Well, I think Senator Graham said it best. He said, you know, the reason you're doing this is because you know that if you reintroduce this into Congress today as a new equal rights amendment, um, that that uh, you wouldn't have two thirds support of Congress, let alone three quarters of the states. I wanted to bring up in the context of, of rescission, right, that these these five states, first of all, um, I think 
the fact that there were rescissions in in the seventeen in the nineteen seventies, right, um, does prove something uh, about the ERA, which is that when particularly women, which is it's generally agreed on in in sort of um, in historical context, that it was Phyllis Schlafly and women female voters who killed the ERA in the seventies. Um, when when the consequences of that amendment are actually debated in the public and not just sort of talked about as a matter of platitudes, um, that actually you, we see people turning against this amendment. And for the very reasons that, you know, Jennifer and Emma, you guys have laid out, right, that the fact that there are so many consequences for women and girls, if we force the law to be blind um, to sex differences. Um, so... I guess um, my question here is, in the context of, of rescission, um, does there have to be some kind of, or Jennifer, do you anticipate that the court will uh, rule in a, a broader way on this and actually set some guardrails around this? Because even forgetting for a moment about the particularities of the ERA, um, there does seem to be some tension in their various um sort of some of them are in dicta some of it is actually um actually in decisions right but they they and one they in one case they leave this to as a political question for congress to decide in which case congress could you know decide that in, in perpetuity we can have amendments for 200 years right um but in others, they, they use this phrase that you used earlier on, which is uh, the, the reasonably contemporaneous ratification, right, mm -hmm. for, for the reasons that we've discussed, right, that it makes no sense to have an Article 5 process where there is no contemporaneity to, is that a word? Um, <laughs> to, <It's now>. yeah, <laughs> um, to, to this, this like decision-making process that we're all collectively engaged in as citizens. Um, do you what what do you predict about the future uh, of court cases over this amendment? Because there are several flying in both directions at the moment. So I think the problem is that courts tend to not want to have to decide things that they don't have to. And so in the um, in the lower court case in the District of Columbia, the judge said, you know, basically um, the states three states sued to try to enforce the, the ERA. They wanted the judge to order the archivist to publish it. And the judge said he wasn't going to do that. Um, he did say that essentially that it had expired, but he kind of left open the question of um, whether that expiration could be changed by Congress. And just today, actually, at 11 a.m., the, the um, Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit affirmed that ruling. I haven't had a chance to read the opinion I, you know, what I'd like to see is a very clear ruling from the court um, about not only that that the original ERA has expired, but also um, outlining the Congress's power or lack thereof in terms of changing the deadline. Um, you know, I believe that Congress's power is only to propose and send to the states and that that's where the power ends. Um, but the courts haven't really addressed that explicitly. And I'd, I'd like to see them do that so that we're not, you know, engaging in this political theater a decade from now. Emma, what, what was the most important takeaway that you, um, take away that you took away um, from, from being in this hearing? Um, you know, what is your sense of where the debate over this amendment is actually going to go because it struck me that, so I've been working on this issue for a long time now. Um, mm -hmm. And, and in even two or three years ago, I felt like I was screaming into a wilderness and most of the country didn't know this, this amendment existed. They all, the rest of them thought it died in the 1970s. Um, and there were just a few very uh, strident activists who were pushing forward with a very radical theory, not only of the amendment itself, but of the ratification process um, and, and I felt like I was just like waving my hands in a corner saying, Hey guys, like this, this could actually matter, you know? Um, and now I feel like we had, we've had a couple hearings on this. Um, we had, you know, senators actually attending this hearing to, in order to politically grandstand, which we didn't even have that before, um, half, half of the earlier hearings were basically, you know, half attendance or, um, 
And and we finally have this response from conservative media over this. So um, th- this is going. This hearing is going to get coverage. It's, there's going to be articles in Washington Examiner, in in National Review, right? Um, in in all of the, the the pieces of the conservative media. It seems to me that the right is now paying attention to this at least a little bit. Um, where do you think the fight over this amendment is going to go? going forward, assuming that it's not going to get the, the, the 60 votes required to dissolve this. Um, is this something we're just going to see relitigated every Congress as Democrats introduce it, um, a, a resolution to dissolve uh, this deadline? Are we just going to have this fight every year from here on out until one side or the other gets the 60 votes for cloture? Like what's going to happen? I certainly hope that's not the case. And part of the reason why IWF and Heritage and so many conservative groups um, came out in such large um, numbers today was to try to make the ERA as politically unpopular as possible. Um, But when it comes to the the main takeaway that I had observing this, there's clearly the aspect of women's sports and the disillusion of sex. But there was a really interesting progression throughout the hearing that I think is worth noting here. So at the very beginning, after um, one of the legal scholars um, in favor of the ERA, she was the last one to testify. Kathleen Sullivan. Yes, Kathleen Sullivan. Former dean of the Stanford Law School. Yes. Okay. So one of the Republican senators um, asked her, do you think that the ERA um, provides a a path for abortion um, going back into the Constitution? And she basically refused to answer. So she just kind of gave a non-answer, sort of pivoted um, and really tried not to address it. Yeah, what she what she actually said is, um, I believe, something to the effect of it, it will the Equal Rights Amendment will enshrine equality and the courts will work out the details. Yeah, so a non-answer, but an answer, right? And then about halfway through, um, the um, I am a Black female representing who knows what um, woman, uh, Thursday Williams. Yeah, it's Thursday Williams, right? Totally fair description of her because that is literally what she repeated 50 times during (laughs) how she started every sentence. It's not making any other claim aside from this is what she said. But then about halfway through, she said something very interesting where she was like, when it comes to the rights that would be afforded to women if the ERA was passed, um, her framing um, as she answered the question was, well, after recent events this past summer, it seems the need for the ERA is greater than ever. And recent events of this past summer, right, is the overturning of Roe v. Wade and KCV Planned Parenthood and the Dobbs decision. And so then you saw even a clearer example, which a lot of conservatives were like, hmm, that that seems like a very clear connection between the need for the ERA and the need for abortion in their mind. And at the very end, they uh, we saw the best back and forth between Senator Durbin and Jennifer that I think just justified the entire hearing. Um, so Senator, Senator Durbin um, very offhandedly was like, you know, do we actually care about women's sports? That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And Jennifer was like, actually, I think it's a really big deal to all the female athletes who would have their opportunities destroyed, right? And they go back and forth a little bit. And then he concludes this segment saying, well, the reason we need the ERA is so we can enshrine abortion or to protect abortion rights. And he just came out and said it. And Um, and let's be clear, the pro-ERA side has for years denied that this is about abortion. And you know what, if it is about abortion, then propose a constitutional amendment to protect that right. And let's see what the American people do with it. But don't try to put it in the Constitution through the back door of the ERA without even letting people know, oh, by the way, that's what your state voted for in 1972. Right. Because they didn't think that's what they were voting for. So again, it's anti-democratic. And, and the Dobbs decision was a very pro-democracy decision. It did not take away the right to abortion. It did not enshrine the rights of life in the Constitution. It simply said abortion isn't mentioned in our governing charter, um, and the people need to decide, you know, how they're going to regulate this. Um, that's what that's what the decision said. So, I think to 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 enshrine it in the Constitution now as a matter of law, certainly the American people can do that if that's their political will, but uh, nobody's been given a chance to debate that. Yeah. Jennifer, so I, yeah. Uh, Jennifer, what about you? What, what, what are your predictions about 
um, not only I, I asked you earlier about the, the court cases, um, but where the political debate over this amendment will go now that we do have um, a little bit of the public's attention on it, right? As opposed to in the past where it really was completely under the radar. Nobody knew nobody knew that Virginia, like Virginia with great fanfare, quote unquote, became the 38th state to ratify the ERA in 2020, um, in early 2020, before the, the whole world collapsed. Um, you know, where do you think the political debates are going to go? I mean, are the proponents at any point just going to listen to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's advice, put this back in the hopper, start again? Um, do you expect this to, to be battled out in, in the state legislatures? I don't, because I think that they're afraid that they will lose there. Um, I don't even think they'd get it to the state legislatures. I don't think it would emerge from Congress. And I think they know that. Um, I also think that the pro-ERA forces believe, um, as they do with respect to many issues, actually, that if you say something often enough, it becomes true. And so their strategy is very much... Um, Proceed on all fronts, bring lawsuits in federal court, bring lawsuits in state court to start try to, trying to have it enforced, um, try to get Congress to lift the deadline, um, have Columbia Law School print up versions of the Constitution that include a 28th Amendment, uh, which is the ERA. Um, so they're just acting as though it's law of the land. They're going to keep saying, as, as the witnesses and, and the protesters did today, uh, the ERA is in the Constitution. And they'll say it often enough that, unfortunately, young people who aren't as well educated as they should be will believe it. And part of the reason they'll believe it is because they hear it enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of the reason they'll believe it is because they do live in a world where men and women have legal equality. And so they'll think to themselves, well, you know, my three daughters could think to themselves, uh, you know, well, I can do anything my brother could do in this country. And these people keep telling me that that there's an equal rights amendment to the Constitution, that it's the 28th Amendment. So that must be so. But they don't realize that, in fact, their constitutional equality stems from the fact that it's a sex neutral document, that men and women share all the same rights in the Constitution um, and with the passage of the 19th Amendment and the interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause to cover sex, uh, their rights are constitutionally enshrined. So they don't they don't realize that their rights don't come from a fake ERA. Um, well, hopefully my daughters realize that, but but people like my daughters may not. So I, you know, I, they're just going to keep pushing this in the court of public opinion and messaging it. Um, you know, until I, I don't know. It's yeah, that's, that's that's maybe a good note to close on the the importance of continuing to make this argument and reminding people that in fact the ERA is not in the Constitution. Um, it has no right to be in the Constitution. It has not uh, passed the procedural hurdles required for it to be the Twenty Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. Um, Jennifer, thank you so much for your courageous testimony. I hope people will go and watch Jennifer's testimony um, in this, this uh, Senate Judiciary hearing. Emma Waters, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us to talk about this and talk about your perspectives in the room and do this kind of post-game wrap-up here with me uh, on High Noon. Thanks, ladies, for joining us. Thanks, Inez. Thanks, Inez. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.